Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're going to learn about one aspect of artificial intelligence, or AI, that few of us have likely considered. As we become more dependent on this technology, there is some concern that it could, inclu- it could include, that is, the inherent bias of programmers. What would that mean? With me in studio to take a closer look are Dr. Calvin Lai, Assistant Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Washington University. David Karandish is CEO of Jane.ai, a company that builds itself as an artificial intelligence platform that makes companies' information accessible through chat. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Great to have you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Well, this is quite a subject in this day and age. It's advancing so quickly. David, let me begin with you. Um, Give me your definition of what exactly AI is. Great. So artificial intelligence, yeah, you can think of it as software that continues to learn without being explicitly programmed. So if you think about traditional software, uh, you know, you think about your old Microsoft Office program, someone would ship it out, and it could pretty much only do what the programmers told told it could do. Uh, with AI, you have algorithms that are designed to learn and continue to take on new data in order to make better decisions over time. What kinds of things are out there right now where AI is being uh, uh, implemented? So AI is being implemented across every industry uh, out there today. Um, anything from uh, Zillow evaluating home prices uh, all the way up to uh, you know governments hunting terrorists uh, in the Middle East. How about Alexa? Is Alexa part of this uh, part, part of this uh, concept? Yeah, so Alexa could be thought of as a digital assistant that uses AI to power a lot of its voice technology. And the, the company that we started, Jane.ai, uh, also plays in the uh, AI space. Specifically, you could think of us like Alexa, but for the workplace. Okay. Just uh, expand upon that uh, a little bit more, if you would. Yeah. So – uh, you think about all the times when you're looking for information within an organization. You're trying to find that presentation that you have coming up next week or uh, notes from a meeting or you're trying to pull the primary contact from Salesforce. We have gotten so inundated with all the different software packages that we use that we built Jane to go connect to all of a company's major cloud-based apps to read the contents of your documents and start to catalog the knowledge of your team and put it in one place. And at times it's working on its own? Uh, so Jane is continuing to pick up new ways of uh, interacting, the new ways that people might ask various questions. What about robots? So I, uh, robots are taking AI out of the software space and adding it into the hardware space. So if you think about companies like Boston Dynamics, um, they're building out physical robots to do things from working in factories to uh, opening doors to walking docks. Okay. Calvin, what do you think of all of this? Uh, I think that Artificial intelligence certainly has kind of a lot of potential. Uh, and in many ways, uh, it can be a powerful uh, mechanism for reducing uh, human biases because it leads to consistent decision making. But at the end of the day, a lot of the uh, initial uh, kind of parameters that are set onto AI are designed by humans. And so uh, there is still the worry of there being systematic biases uh, on the basis of race, gender, or or other things like social class that we might not be aware of that we're baking into these AI systems. Well, let me ask you to expand on that a little bit. How how would this work that way? Yeah, so uh, in one of the kind of initial cases, I think this happened uh, with uh, some of these GPS or kind of voice recognition systems that uh, people designed. 
Uh, they were originally trained on the people who programmed them, which often were kind of white uh, American men. And so it ended up being the case that these voice recognition software uh, were really good at recognizing and responding to the voices of white American men and not so useful for or less useful for women or people with non-American accents. And so inequality wasn't the intention, uh, but inequality was the outcome. David, what, what do you make of this? And are you concerned about this? Oh, I think that if AI systems are not thoroughly thought out, you can get uh, terrible results. A classic example would be uh, you know, one of Google's early uh, facial recognition algorithms detected people of African descent, and it uh, unfortunately identified them as gorillas. Another example of this would be Microsoft released a chat bot where they let anyone um, anyone say anything to that bot, and within about 48 hours, it became very anti-Semitic. And so if you think about why this is happening, it's, it's not that the algorithms themselves are biased. That would be like saying the Pythagorean theorem is biased against circles, mm-hmm. right? It's the fact that the training data is so paramount uh, in order to get the right results. And so if you want to be able to design a system to not have or to reduce as many of these biases as possible, you want to make sure that, first of all, the system is self-correcting, so you don't just train it once and then you're done. Second of all, that you, uh, uh, to Calvin's point, you have a representative sample of people in your training set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're only training with one particular age or socioeconomic demographic, you're, you're going to get a certain type of result. And then lastly, uh, it's important that anyone can submit information to the AI to train it, but you want to be able to moderate it as well Mm -hmm. because uh, people will teach chatbots the darndest things without a little bit of oversight. Calvin, I would think that no matter what you do, you could never completely eliminate what we're talking about here, these kind of biases. Yeah, and I I think a lot of times uh, these AI systems often are kind of best complemented with a human uh, at the end of it who can take what the AI outputs and then kind of complements it with whatever they know. Because sometimes the errors that it makes uh, are not going to be obvious. Aside from the obvious uh, kinds of errors that uh, David has alluded to, what, what I mean, that would be obvious, certainly. What could we as just plain folks be looking for and, you know, the kind of programs we might be exposed to every day? Do you want, why don't you take that, Kelvin? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times, unfortunately, these the types of systematic biases that AIs might output are going to be invisible to the person at the other end. Uh, you know, these AIs are often being trained on hundreds of variables, and then it's told to kind of come out with one answer. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, if you're the person at the other side of the Alexa, you're not going to know why it came to that answer necessarily. And so if it was coming to that conclusion based on, for biased reasons, you wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. You want to expand on that, uh, David? Yeah, I mean, I think the the roadmap for how to de-bias an AI is, is actually fairly straightforward. I think the first thing is, is that you have to be able to provide feedback along the way. So when we go to market, uh, we release Jane with a thumbs up, thumbs down. So with every single response, you can say, did this answer the question or not? Mm-hmm. Was it matching to the vernacular that you use? Uh, the second thing I mentioned earlier is getting that representative sample of, of people, uh, which is going to vary by group or by organization. So when we work with, a, with an organization, we ask, we ask that company to sit down and tell us 
who would be a representative sample of your team that could go train the AI initially uh, to make sure that we get the best results. And then lastly, the monitoring of the, of the information. I, I completely agree with, with Calvin that uh, you want to have people in the loop to just keep basic guardrails in place mm. to make sure that uh, AIs don't come to the wrong decisions. Well, these, these people <laughs> that we're talking about have individual biases. We, we all do. I mean, so ultimately, there is, it's, it's never going to be a perfect system, correct? Of course. Yeah. Well, there we are. So we're stuck with bias being embedded in some of these programs that we're talking about. Yeah, Sue, so I think you, you have bias in traditional software as well in terms right. of how it's laid out and um, visual. You know, it took a long time for, uh, for example, people with visual disabilities to be able to catch up. But I think the way that you can vastly reduce that bias is by making sure that Again, if a representative sample of people are continuing to train, uh, the algorithms will reflect the people that that uh, they engage in it. I think, though, the, the bigger problem that people aren't talking about enough is if the programmers who are in the tech field, if they're still 80% plus uh, Caucasians, uh, you are not going to get a representative sa- sample of uh other, you know, other races, other socioeconomic backgrounds to come in and, and program from the beginning. So it, it's almost just as important that we start early teaching kids computer science, giving them access to these tools so that uh, that next generation is can continue to be filled with folks who have been coding since they were kids from every walk of life. Mm. Calvin, aside from the most eg- egregious kinds of examples that we uh, talked about earlier, what is wrong with bias? I mean, we're dealing with it every day in our person-to-person uh, re, uh, uh, interactions. Bias is going to be present, invisible most of the time. So what's wrong with it? I, I think that um, as a society, there are some things that we agree, for the most part, morally to be things that we don't want to do. We don't want to judge people uh, on the basis of race. We don't want to judge people on the basis of gender or social class, uh, and we want the systems that we work with to reflect our values. Um, So there are sometimes these cases where if an AI did incorporate or consider a person's race or gender or social class, they might be better at predicting something that it's designed to predict. But as a society, we might tell ourselves, we don't want our AI to be better on those grounds. It just should not consider on the basis of our moral values, what a person's race or gender is. Well, and I'll, I'll add to that. I think part of the the reason that people uh, have been maybe slightly more concerned with AI is because of the transparency factor. Mm-hmm. So um, there are biases all around, uh, many of which are terrible that need to be reduced, many of which we've all accepted as a society. For example, my grandmother can go to the movies and get a discounted price uh, because the, the movie theaters have said, from a price discrimination standpoint, we're going to give seniors a little extra deal so we can get them into the movie theater. We all accept that as a society as a positive bias um, that we're all willing, we're mm-hmm. mostly willing to, to take. Right? It's the fact that uh, behind artificial intelligence, the algorithms that that power these decisions are often a black box. I think that's what causes people angst, where they don't even necessarily know what those biases could be. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to take a break now. This is this is fascinating. I keep coming back to the fact that 
ultimately, when you get uh, peel this onion to, uh, down to the last level, there's going to be somebody there, and they're going to be dealing with the, the programming, and they will have, you know, whatever their bias uh, might be. Anyway, we'll come back and talk more about this. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about bias and artificial intelligence. Uh, what does it mean, and uh, what's the concern? Should we be concerned about it? Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back to our conversation about bias in artificial intelligence. We have uh, a, a question here that uh, someone has sent in saying, what are some appropriate biases to program in? David, uh, I suppose there are such animals. Yeah, so some appropriate biases. Uh, you know, you think about uh, something, for example, with insurance. Mm. An appropriate bias is that if someone has had previous accidents, that their insurance rates should probably be priced slightly higher than people who haven't had a, a car accident. Uh, so that that's a pretty straightforward one. Um, conversely, though, uh, if you happen to live in a neighborhood where your neighbor had an accident, um, and that that happens to be where where you live, um, that that probably shouldn't mm. be a, appropriately. That, I would call that an inappropriate application of of uh, an AI algorithm. Mm. Calvin, do you have any th- thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think that you know um, David has kind of outlined some of the cases where. It feels appropriate to consider some of these group-based factors. Uh, what's also something that's really kind of popping out right now is that there's a lot of moral dilemmas that we're confronted with when we're thinking about doing these things at scale with AI. Uh, so, you know, it might seem, uh, you know, if you're buying ads on Facebook, a little bit uncontroversial to say that you want to target. Uh, African-American users for, um, let's say, ads related to, um, uh, you know, Black Panther or BET. But it seems way more controversial to do it in housing ads where it's actually strictly illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, Another case uh, that's been really kind of a lot of academics have been talking about is like what happens when you have these self-driving cars on the road and they have to make a decision, let's say, to hit, uh, you know, they have to swerve and they're either going to hit uh, three older men or uh, two younger children, how is a self-driving car supposed to make a decision? And at the end of the day, uh, the decision have to be made by humans with whatever moral values that they have. That, uh, that, that's a tough one. <laughs> I mean, you start talking about some of the things and some of the areas in which AI is coming into play, and we're really looking at virtually everything. Everywhere. Every single industry is going to be dramatically changed by AI. Yeah. So what do we do? I mean, we can talk about our concerns. And is there technology ultimately out there that's going to make the proper decision when it comes to whether to hit the old man or the three-year-old? So I, I think what – I don't think technology is going to solve the ethical problem yeah. itself. I th- but I do think that technology can make that uh, ethical problem be – uh, discussed and and you can actually run simulations and say, hey, this is how our technology is going to work, yeah. and and use you know the best judgment that we have to decide what that looks like. Yeah. 
Is it possible to just take this too far, this whole AI thing, Calvin? Um, I mean, honestly, I feel like at the end of the day, AI is a tool, just like many other tools that we've had. And um, while I think we focus a lot on the kind of, you know, potential negative outcomes of having AI make our decisions for us, um, in many ways it can also be uh, beneficial. You know, unlike uh, us unreliable humans, AIs will often make uh, the same decision consistently over and over and over. And so you're not going to get these cases where people are just making mistakes, errors, or kind of accidental discrimination. Um, and in that way, uh, AI can be quite beneficial, at least for the uh, reducing bias. So I think you can see it both ways uh, as a kind of a, a tool that can be applied. People do become alarmed, though, when you hear stories about the potential for AI in some form or another basically taking over, taking over, and, and maybe the uh, whatever form that takes won't like us very much <laughs> and will get rid of us. I think we're a long way off from that. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope so. But, you know, every time a new technology comes out, there's always going to be, um, you know, a big question on how it affects society. I mean, not too long ago, we lived in an agrarian uh, economy. And, uh, you know, with the advent of the automobile, there were a lot of horse and buggy drivers who sure. had, had to transition. Yeah. Um, but I, I think net-net, if technology can take the the mundane task that we do day in and day out and can get us focused on the creative aspects of who we are as a, as a human species, uh, I think ultimately that will be for our common good. Did you want to say something? Yeah. I'll move. Go ahead. I mean, I I totally agree. Like any time, you know, we automate certain tasks, it frees up us as a society to do other things, right? Now we don't need typists as much. And people who might have been typists can maybe enter new professions that didn't exist before, like computer programmer. Uh, And so there's there's always something new. Um, that gets freed up when uh, things become automated. Sure, and, and but there is also that concern, and I don't want to. I'll just be devil's advocate here in this idea that uh, it can also cost a lot of people the opportunity to work. That may, other jobs will be created, but uh, perhaps far more will be eliminated than created. I mean, that's a, a potential, I suppose. So I have I have four kids, and uh, from ages eighteen months to almost seven years, and most of their jobs are probably don't exist yet because uh-huh. they haven't been created. Yeah. Uh, that said, I do think it's important that for people who, who get stuck in the middle, that we have a way of helping them transition and new economy skills. Yeah. I used to work at a television station. And at one point, uh, they used to have cameramen behind the studio cameras. Uh, they became automated and uh, robotic, if you will. And all the men who were behind those cameras were saying, we're going to lose our jobs. As it turned out, jobs were gained because you needed more technicians to service <laughs> the robotic <laughs> equipment. So right. there's a the other can happen as well. Let's take a call. We've got Mike uh, calling from the Hill, I believe. Uh, he has a question or comment. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, Don. Hi. I've been thinking about these ideas for about 50 years when I suggested eventually we'll, we'll be virtual. But the, And I argued at that time that the important aspect of the future would be diversity, diversity of input. And so I think that's an important concept that will save us from... The other thing, I've been on a tirade against... Not tirade, but I've been against the word artificial for many years on many different fronts, and I think we should call it enhanced evolution. Uh, I mean, we don't call cars artificial locomotion, and uh, we don't use the word artificial except in 
sort of dystopian ideas, but it's really not artificial. It's, a, it's an, an expansion of our intelligence, and it's a natural order of things. And as long as we have diversity of input, I think we're going to come out all right. Uh, Mike, thanks for the call. Calvin, you've been nodding uh, during his comments. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, this just due to perhaps historical accident, landing on the term artificial intelligence, like immediately kind of brings to mind things like um, the Terminator yeah. and Skynet and all these things that we saw in our 80s sci-fi movies. Hal in 2001. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if by some other historical accident we had ended up with something like, you know, uh, decision-making enhancers or whatever, it doesn't sound as kind of scary and as, as it might have been. Uh, and in, in a way, a lot of times, essentially AR are just there to kind of help complement what humans are doing. And so the calling it artificial intelligence couldn't be quite misleading in that way. Well, one thing I'll add to what the listener said was I, I really like the term augmented intelligence mm-hmm. uh, because it, it connotates the fact that we are, we are augmenting our own intelligence with that of the machines that we're programming. And it's not an either or, but it's really a both and. That really makes a lot of sense to put it that way. And you, you don't even have to change the name of your exactly. company because it starts with an A. Exactly. It starts with an A. <laughs> we, uh, one of our producers had uh, raised this issue earlier, and it's an interesting one. It says, speaking of uh, potential gender biases, we're familiar with Alexa, Siri, and Jane. It's typical for these uh, AI voices to be women's. What's going on there? Yeah, great question. So uh, they've done studies that show how female voices in the synth- synthetic voices for things like cockpits back in airplanes um, and other um, you know, teleprompts over the phone, uh, both men and women can hear the tone and pitch of female voices better than men's. Mm-hmm. That's why most of the, these systems start out female. Uh, but there has been some pushback uh, of saying you know, non-voice-driven AIs, uh, you think about Salesforce's Einstein as an example. Uh, hey, you, you don't want the, the really smart AIs to be men and the not-so-smart AIs to be, or the digital assistants to be women. I, I actually look at Jane uh, as climbing the corporate ladder, where she may start out as more of an admin. She works her way up in the organization and becomes more of a, of a manager. And then eventually, my, my goal, uh, if we're sitting here, you know, 10 years from now, is that we can talk about Jane as your first digital executive. Really? Yeah. What do you think, Calvin? Um, yeah, I think in addition to kind of some of these basic issues of acoustics and being able to understand the voice, um, people ha- often just have a social preference for women, uh, and it's so robust that social psychologists call it the women is wonderful effect. Uh-huh. Uh, and so this is a case, you know, if you're thinking just about the social preference, that uh, our AI ref- reflect the, the, the biases of our societies. And whether or not that um, is kind of uh, something that we want to consider, like maybe we can change the voices of AI to kind of change uh, our biases is something we might want to, well, consider. <laughs> Could, couldn't we just concede that women's voices are generally more soothing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. That's in its simplest form. We have one of our listeners uh, sent a tweet and said, uh, "There's a book recommendation she has on this topic. It's called Technically Wrong by Sarah Walker Betchler. I guess is the way it's pronounced. Are you familiar with that? And uh, I've it heard sounds, of it. I haven't read it yet. Nor have I. But it sounds like maybe she's a little concerned about where all of this is going." Calvin, have you heard of it? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't heard of this book either. But yeah, I think that, you know, just like with any new technology, 
there are going to be uh, kind of worries in both directions about how it's going to pan out. Well, we need to put a bottom line on this. Uh, uh, David, what do you want listeners to take away from this conversation? I'm sure a lot of them you know, have questions and, and maybe even some concerns about all of this. Uh, so the bottom line on this is that any individual or corporation who's working with an AI provider, uh, that provider should be very transparent into how that AI gets applied. It should have uh, things like feedback, uh, feedback loops to improve uh, representative samples of people through training, and it should be something where those responses can be moderated so that they can be implemented in a way that fits all of their, uh, all of their constituents. And then lastly, what I would say is that uh, it is going to be a crawl before we walk, before we uh, run. Uh, so you're going to see AI continue to advance, uh, but it's it's going to be one one day at a time. Right. Uh, just to, to before I go to Calvin, I, I read something that you were quoted as saying that a course correction is necessary. What what do you mean by that? I think the the course correction is this idea that AIs are going to come in and solve all problems in a completely automated way on day one. I think that that we're both setting expectations too high, but we're also um, really downplaying the, the areas where our humanity are going, to sh- are going to shine. I view it not as AI versus people or machines versus humans. I, I view them as augmenting each other. Mm-hmm. Calvin, uh, your, your hope for a takeaway from this uh, discussion? Yeah, I, I think that my takeaway from seeing all these kind of really interesting innovations in AI is that, you know, it's ultimately a new technology. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, in that it can help us make decisions consistently and without error. But at the same time, they're programmed by humans, subject to human biases, and may intentionally or unintentionally reproduce uh, some of the problems that we have in society. So be vigilant. Yes. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. I want to thank you both, Calvin Live, Washington University, for being with us, David Karandish, CEO of Jane.ai. Thank you all for being with us. Interesting subject. We'll be dealing with this for many moons to come, needless to say. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.